Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Yeah, and joining us today are The Times' very own James Gearbrand and Bill Edgar. Coming up, we'll look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action, which includes one of England's classic fixtures as unbeaten Liverpool and Arsenal go head-to-head at Anfield. But first to the fallout, which marred Manchester United's one-all draw at Wolves on Monday night, as Paul Pogba was racially abused online following his missed penalty at Molyneux. Well, Pogba's Manchester United teammates, Harry Maguire and Marcus Rashford, have come out in support of him following the incident, calling on social media companies to stop racist messages being published. Maguire tweeted, it was disgusting that social media need to do something about it. Every account that is open should be verified by a passport or driving licence. He said, stop these pathetic trolls making numerous accounts to abuse people. And Marcus Rashford added on his own account, enough now, this needs to stop. Manchester United is a family. Paul Pogba is a huge part of that family. You attack him, you attack us all at Manchester United. Now, Pogba is the third player in a week to be racially abused on social media following a penalty miss. That's after Tammy Abraham's missed spot kick in the Super Cup against Liverpool. And then there was Yakumete, the Reading striker, who was also abused for his missed penalty in a game against Cardiff. Phil Neville, the England women's head coach, has been asked questions about social media. He suggested that clubs and footballers should boycott social media over the racist abuse. And I know we'd all agree that social media companies need to do more but should players themselves be boycotting social media? Where do we stand on that? It's a big question. Uh, I mean, I mean, firstly, it's perhaps a bit depressing seeing what Rashford said, that if you attack Pogba, you attack us all at Manchester United. So appealing to Manchester United fans, thinking, well, I won't send out a racist message because it might affect Manchester United. You know, that, that's the kind of level you have to deal with. And you may, may well be right. But it's a very deep, deep question. I mean, I guess all you can say is, Football, because it's so high profile, if they do, if footballers make a stand or football community make a stand, at least it gets a masses of publicity. It's right around the country, so at least the message gets across. I mean, people have said, isn't it a bit unfair that there's there'll be so much focus on protecting the handful of uh, black players at the top of the British game when what about everybody else who's getting racist abuse around the country um obviously i mean that that is unfair however you know at least by highlighting the issue that the the, the footballers are facing then it does bring it out into the open and perhaps that's the best you can do the pfa obviously had a boycott at the end of last season that was yeah. for 24 hours and that was the t- twitter blackout wasn't yeah. it yeah um when they posted the, the same message on a bright red background then it was widely shared and i think it probably could have been deemed a success but i think getting footballers to stay off social media for 24 hours is a task in itself so the idea that it should be any longer than that um or the fact that they should have to is really a unrealistic and b it's, it's nonsense it shouldn't have to happen 
I think generally it's unrealistic too for for so many reasons. I think Alison Rod wrote, wrote about this yesterday in the paper that social media is something that clubs use for for commercial reasons now, and a lot of there's a lot of positive interaction between supporters of clubs and their club and and its players. Uh, so so the idea that that should have to have to end or that that's necessary to to make a a message strong enough that this is unacceptable i don't think i don't think there's any justification for that personally i think obviously there are, there are kind of there are kind of two issues aren't there i think there certainly is some fault on the on the part of the the social media companies themselves because they're very in general they're very kind of slow and and lax in in banning these accounts and and in taking strong action on racist abuse and and in fact you know depressingly uh, you know quite a few of our ethnic minority or, or black journalist colleagues report that you know in instances where they've had racist epithets directed at them quite often they'll report it and the account no action will be taken and i i, I honestly don't know why that is I mean, it's absolutely baffling to me that you know a, an a, account can abuse someone with a racist term and it comes back and and their Twitter finds no violation. I, I I genuinely don't get that, and I sort of like to understand. It just that just seems so obviously wrong to me, and I I sort of like to understand how that can possibly be justified. Obviously, there's also a much more broad issue in that kind of Twitter is only kind of the conduit. It's only sort of a reflection of society. You know, it's ultimately it's not Twitter's fault that you know that the original kind of wrong is obviously people kind of seeing fit to abuse people in this way anyway and I think the mentality of it is is so depressing because uh, as you alluded to all the in this particular week all the instances followed an, an instance of a player in a vertical doing something wrong are you missing a penalty but I just I think there's that whole kind of attitude of you know sort of accountability you know if a player does something wrong or you know makes a sort of mistake that obviously they have no intention of making in a match. Footballers will make mistakes. It's just it's the nature of any sport. And I think the idea that footballers are kind of accountable to the fans for anything that they do wrong on the pitch is is such a kind of deep-rooted one and such a kind of hard one to unravel. Um, and I, 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 my personal view is that players... I feel there's a real kind of there's been a sort of rash in recent seasons of players apologising to fans for bad performances or apologising to fans for doing things wrong and I just don't think I just don't agree with that I don't think any player you know I just don't I think it's a bad precedent to set because it Mm. creates the idea that players are accountable for things that you know are just simply the, the nature of the game but I mean how you kind of you know go about stopping people going online to send racist abuse to people. I mean, that's huge societal it's not issue. Football. It's, it's, it's not football's of, issue. It's an intractable It's a huge, huge issue. Problem. And I don't think you can have this conversation without sort of acknowledging the sort of political climate throughout the country and Europe and beyond. And that's, it's, it just seems to be becoming more commonplace that, that this is, and sort of the idea that's becoming slightly more, accept, well, I don't know, it seems to be more acceptable or like, and, and even our political leaders <laughs> so I know this is a football podcast, but hmm. really I think it's all it's all intertwined, and yeah. there's no doubt that um, this is not football's issue alone.
Oh, definitely not. Um, on the game then itself at Wolves, the big talking point was the decision for Paul Pogba then, not Marcus Rashford, to take the penalty that Pogba eventually missed. Rashford had scored a penalty in the opening game against Chelsea, whilst Pogba well, has a poor record from the spot, missing four of his 11 Premier League spot kicks. Now, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer defended the decision, claiming the club share penalties between Rashford and Pogba, depending on who fancies it on the day. Do we believe this? Gregor, come on, you've played, <laughs> you know how it works. Is, is that how it happens, that, that, it, that it's down to the players to decide? I was trying to think this on the way in. I, I, have I played in a team where there wasn't necessarily a designated penalty kick taken? Undoubtedly, I have, yeah. I don't think... I mean, is there a designated corner taker for each side, a designated thrower on, a free kick taker? Are, are those are they not all planned beforehand, usually? Well, yeah, and increasingly... So I think... I think the game is changing, obviously, and it has changed since I even since I played. And uh, what Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville were saying on Sky Sports about the sort of the great detail and and preparation and analysis and every every there's no stone left unturned. The goalkeepers study the la- the history, the <laughs> the history of penalty kick takers, uh, where they've hit the shots and stuff. So the idea that it's been left to a conversation on the pitch. That's the only thing about this. You can have more than one penalty kick taker. Having a conversation about who's taking it on the pitch, A, increases the pressure on whoever does take the the kick eventually, and B, it just doesn't look good. Mm. And I think it's just sort of brought pressure on himself, sort of unnecessarily, really. But I mean, surely if you surely if you have more than one penalty kick taker, you're you're very liable to end up in that situation where it's it's not entirely clear, and you do have to have a conversation on the pitch. I think it would be wise to to know who it is before the game. The idea that this was the idea behind it is. You only know when you when the penalty kick is awarded if you have the confidence to take it or whether you feel right. That's mm. nonsense. Mm. If you, if we any of us think that Paul Pogba or Marcus Rashford are not going to be confident enough to take a penalty kick, I think mm. confidence is not a thing either that those two players lack necessarily. And if they do, if they really don't have the confidence that on in that moment, they can still give it to someone else. Mm. Mm. But the idea that that's the reason behind it, I'm not really having. I also understand that he's trying to give some responsibility to players perhaps you know I mean football now it just seems like players are cogs in, in a increasingly complicated system and then they don't have much responsibility for anything <laughs> so I understand that you know give players some responsibility now on the pitch but uh, not in that instance no I would I would defend Pogba a bit in terms of his record I mean 4 out of 11 does sound bad but that's so he scored 7 out of 11 for Manchester United, um, all of which are since the start of last season in the Premier League. He scored his only penalty in the Champions League, so that's 8 out of 12. On, on the normal conversion rate in football, you'd expect to score either 9 or 10, so he's not that far off. And the, the 4 he's missed, um, he's struck reasonably well I think against um, Wolves and Southampton. He struck it reasonably well, not quite so good against Everton Burnley, but he did score from the follow-up against Everton. So, um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's a complete, uh, you know, give up on him. I like completely. that. You've turned a negative into a positive. Yeah, <laughs> on the other hand, Rashford has done very well so far. So, if you were choosing, I'd guess you'd, you'd go with Rashford at the moment. Well, it has, as a result of that game, been suggested that Solskjaer has now taken Pogba off penalty duties. Some of the European transfer windows we know don't close for a few more weeks, but with it looking unlikely that anyone is willing to pay the big fee for Pogba, how big a risk is it to have potentially an unhappy player in the squad if, for example, Solskjaer has taken 
one of his duties away from him. And he's a big character, as we know. He certainly is, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it seems a risk just in that in that fact alone that he's potentially going to be unhappy. But he's, he's not seemed very happy for for a while, and he still sees flashes of what he's capable of. Whether he's capable of it on a consistent, regular basis, even if he is happy or not, is another question. I'm not entirely convinced that he, he is. He just seems to be someone who can be brilliant and then sort of fairly average in the grand scheme of things for what he's capable of. So I suppose it is a bit of a risk, but at the same time, Manchester United really need him. I don't see... There's not much depth in that squad at the moment. They'll let players go and there could be more to go. Um, but if he's one of them, then you know their midfield looks really, really weak. There's very little. There's McTominay and Pogba playing and there's Fred could come back, but he's done almost nothing at Manchester United. So absolutely, they have to stick with Pogba. I don't... You could imagine him really losing, uh, almost giving up in the Mourinho era when Mourinho was um, publicly criticising him, obviously, uh, you know, shouting at him in training and things like that, which was uh, caught on video. But, uh, I mean, Solskjaer's not uh, saying any of that, at least in public anyway. So so I, I don't think it's, in any case, uh, you'd, you'd stick with Pogba, I think. Staying with United, Romelu Lukaku, who's now at Inter Milan, has spoken about his final year at Old Trafford. He says he, alongside Pogba and Alexis Sanchez, were made scapegoats for what went wrong in a somewhat disappointing campaign last season. James, is he right or did those three players simply not perform? Manchester United for the past sort of three seasons have been have been fundamentally quite uh, mediocre, perhaps would be harsh, but they, they've, they've sort of, they've performed roughly around a sort of certain level, which is sort of, you know, kind of, the fifth or sixth best team in the league, apart from one the period, which is the period shortly after Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was appointed, when for probably about two or two or three months they played really consistently good football. They've played in the past three or four seasons the best best period they've had. Obviously, things went a little bit results deteriorated towards the end of last season. But I think during that period when they were really good, I thought Pogba was obviously was absolutely central to that and sort of really began to look like one of the form midfielders in Europe. So influential was he during that period. I actually felt Lukaku was, although not an automatic player during that period, actually produced some pretty good performances. Um often starting on the on on the wing, so I used him on, 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 on you know out wide and I actually thought he was he, he he was quite good, particularly in the case of in the case of Pogba. I think there's always been a, a slight tendency to sort of scapegoat him. And uh, I, I think Pogba, yeah, definitely picked out as a, a scapegoat. Definitely uh, too much. Lukaku, I mean, Pogba, Lukaku, and Sanchez are the three kind of really big buys and money they've thrown a huge transfer for your wages at. And Pogba's Pogba's been okay, but below what he should have been. Lukaku is okay. I'm Sanchez obviously well below par, but I mean you have to I'd say two two excuses for him. One, the constant injuries which have really um dragged him down. Um and secondly the the style of play under Mourinho I just it was it was so uh, dull and so negative. So in contrast to what he's been used to at um Arsenal and Barcelona and with Chile that I think it was just really hard to to fit in normally he gets the ball up, up near the penalty area and you've got three or four options and under Mourinho there was one option if he was lucky you know so so it was, I think it was very hard for him to fit in but so um 
even even allowing for that, he he was poor. But uh, but yeah, I guess they were the three names were picked out just because they were the the big big money names, and it's easier to to have a go at them than say Lingard, Rashford, and McTominay who all came through the ranks. I think Sanchez is a is a different question. He's a man man into himself. He sort of. He's done nothing really since he's been there, and there, there might be reasons, personal reasons, who, who knows? But it's just been a, it's been an absolute disaster that move. Uh, Lukaku, I think sometimes the rhetoric around his sort of abilities and performances, like, is is sort of really bemusing, you know, making it like this guy who scored nearly a goal every two games for every club except Chelsea is hopeless, you know, he's he's far from hopeless, <laughs> and, yeah. and he's been. Had many millions of pounds lavished on him as well, uh, and he scored fifteen goals last season in all competitions, and and that was supposed to be a hopeless season. For it. it was a difficult season for him, but he still scored fifteen goals. And Pogba scored sixteen, and got eleven assists, and that was still there were still conversations about about him. And I think some of them were justified. As I said, I think he is someone who occasionally, not occasionally, he he just doesn't produce the levels he's capable of on a consistent enough basis like the great the best players do that's often the difference between the best players and do, the rest do you, do you think in within the framework of this united team do you think for example kevin de bruyne would be would be performing better than paul pogba is, has done over the past two seasons yes i don't think i, I, I take your point absolutely that he's been playing in very difficult circumstances and a manager who and Mourinho particularly was throwing him under a bus regularly uh, it's just not been a happy place and uh, I, I take your point but I think yes I think De, De Bruyne would have would have had far more influence on on the team generally I don't know do you disagree with that? I, I, I just I do think a lot of it is obviously is just you know the, the framework that a player is playing within and this you know Manchester United side is as I mentioned, has been intermittently very good, but sort of fundamentally has has been it ha- hasn't performed. It's not. It's the the team just isn't isn't at the same level as the as the likes of in an attacking sense, particularly as the likes of Manchester City and and Liverpool. And as you alluded to, his returns in terms of goals and assists are still very very good. And I so I, I wonder. What if you what if you swapped that around and you put Pogba in the Manchester City team? Would he have the same effect as someone like De Bruyne or any of those midfielders? I think he might might well do. I mean, he, do you? Uh, I mean, if you look at Manchester City's uh, record of the last two years, all the play, almost every player they brought in is absolutely sensational. I mean, I mean, it's Inchenko, a kind of a you know, on the face of it, an average young Ukrainian midfielder. They stick him in at left back. He's absolutely <laughs> a title-winning standard. And it was Manchester United. All most of their purchases have just been very average. I mean, we really to deduce that United's recruitment has has been hopeless across the board, and Manchester City's have been brilliant across the board. I mean. I think it's so much to do with uh, Man City having such an incredible manager and creating a, a, a template of a tactical template, which pretty much everybody could could fit into. 
talk about perhaps the standout fixture of the weekend with Liverpool taking on Arsenal. And James, you wrote an interesting piece in the Times this week about Arsenal's owners starting to show that they care. I think earlier on in the summer, everyone was alluding to the fact that Arsenal didn't have a lot of money to spend. And I know they've been quite clever mm-hmm. with their transfer strategy, but they have spent over £130 million. Tell us a little bit more about your article. It's essentially Arsenal, I think, were quite clever in the way they did their their business in the summer as it was sort of widely kind of reported that their kind of the sort of total amount of money they had to spend having missed out on Champions League football was about 40 million mm. plus outgoings. Mm. Um, they've been a lot of clubs, you they've, they've been particularly clever in their use of sort of stage payments effectively, which are not kind of just an Arsenal thing. A lot mm. of clubs do this, but... For example, the Nicolas Pepe and uh, Saliba deals are kind of structured over they're structured over five seasons. So that's in a nutshell how Arsenal have been able to seemingly spend so much money in a transfer window in which they were supposed to be relatively hard up. Well, as you say, then the Arsenal director Josh Kroenke revealed after conceding the four goals in the second half of the Europa League final they decided to change their recruitment strategy and approach this summer. And he has praised club staff for working their magic in the transfer market. question is, can they really continue their bright start further into this season? Now, Jamie Carragher has already said that the Arsenal strikers of Aubameyang, Lacazette, and now adding Pepe into that forward line can really trouble a Liverpool side, especially they'll without their first choice keeper. Yeah, I guess that quote from Kroenke, I mean, if it's if it's literally true, it's slightly alarming and that if uh, Chelsea just happened to have not had their shooting boots on in that match, would does that mean they wouldn't have signed, Arsenal wouldn't have signed anyone or just signed a couple of, made a couple <laughs> of small signings, you know, the whole long-term uh, planning would have changed. Um, yeah, work, work the magic maybe also, as James alluded to, I think it's, Maybe stretching it, and also a bit early to see. It, yeah, <laughs> yes, it's definitely early to say. I mean, Pepe's are you know only being introduced slowly, and uh, Tierney's not uh, started yet, and Saliba's gone out on loan. Obviously, Danny Ceballos, the new central midfielder, did really well. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think Allison is a, a big miss for for Liverpool. He, he's, he was fantastic last season, and uh, Adriana's. Um, was uh, very erratic at, at the end at West Ham, and um, and he has been so uh, uh, in his brief time now at Liverpool. Um, I'm obviously, his uh, howler to uh, give give the goal to Southampton last week to Danny Ings was pretty terrible, and then generally doesn't he hasn't inspired much confidence. So that's quite a big drop off. However, um, Liverpool's defence in general is, is very strong, so it'd be asking quite a lot, say, for Aubameyang, Lacazette and, Lacazette and Pepe all to suddenly intertwine like Salah, Mane and Firmino, you know, uh, uh, how they've developed over uh, several years. Um, so I, you'd have to say Liverpool are a strong favourite, certainly for this game. Um, but yeah, it's, it is a step in the right direction I think for for Arsenal having making these you know decent looking signings absolutely I think that that, that front three given time a bit of time together to kind of uh, as Bill's alluded to to sort of get to know each other's play and 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 also under under Emery as well um they'll be a, a threat to anyone I think and right up there Liverpool's front three are devastating but they're they're they they look 
really, really a lot of potential. And Reese Nelson also who's who's he's he's not kind of set the world alight in the last two games, but he's been in been a, an important player for them and I think he's this is a big season for him. And Sabalos has been well, that first game was hugely encouraging. So yeah, I think that the Liverpool the, again the issue with Arsenal is going to be defensively the Louise is obviously a, a, been a big big signing for them in terms of bringing some experience, but I think they're still going to be heavily tested uh, at Anfield. I'm really intrigued to see over the over the course of the the season how that the Arsenal front three um, of Aubameyang, Pepe, and, and Lacazette develops because obviously in ter- in terms of individual quality, you know it's an, it's a really exceptional looking front three. I think. You could argue, in terms of the quality of the players, it, it's sort of up there with, you know, the Liverpool front three or the Man City front three, or, or certainly not, not too far behind. But it's not a natural front three because obviously, you know, Aubameyang and, and Lacazette are really both centre forwards. Although we have seen Aubameyang play sort of more on the wing, it's not his. It, you know, I don't think it's his best position. Whereas Pepe and Pepe is more of a kind of conventional sort of modern winger. So. It'll be really interesting to see how Unai Emery kind of balances that. Whether, for example, Pepe plays a bit wider, and or and and you know maybe there's there's, there's a slightly kind of unbalanced lineup with with more width on one side coming from from the fullback or or the wing back. I'm intrigued to see how how it settles, and and also because the one thing we know about Emery is that he is that he's not he's not someone in his first season in particular who seemed to necessarily prioritise having a sort of really settled and consistent system he's someone who is a bit of a comedian in terms of the formation and the systems that he played so it'll be really intriguing I think to see how, how they develop under his management mm. Aubameyang and, and Lacazette obviously we know plenty about but Bill you mentioned Ceballos mm. and mm. he was instrumental for Arsenal's mm. victory against Burnley so how much do you think Jurgen Klopp will be identifying him as someone that they'll have to stop? Yeah, he, um, you know, he's, he's very creative. He's almost like a, a typical Arsenal player under Wenger. You know, sort of a very not huge physically, but um, very creative midfielder. Um, but he was playing as a kind of you know one of the central midfield three, so it wasn't kind of too advanced. So he did, and he did his um, defensive work well as as well um including um a, a very good interception and uh when before which he set up uh, a Bamiyang for the for the winner so um so yeah it's definitely worth watching i also thought um joe willock uh, played very well yeah against burnley you know kind of almost out of nowhere and i mean he absolutely uh real legs in midfield it. which is yeah. you know a bit different to van jack in there mm. Yes, I mean, <laughs> wonder I, how long they'll kind of. Yeah, I don't know how long. I mean, exactly. yeah, I guess Zaka will, you know, they'll have him in as the first choice. Uh, well, he's the captain, though, isn't he? Uh, is he? Yes, I think they were. I think that yeah, sort of, that was something that was almost a bit of a. Yeah. People were sniggering about in in the summer that yeah, Zaka has been named the captain, uh, and he's he's not always kind of no you see flatteringly well, and yeah. <laughs> no he's uh, he'll miss the odd game through his suspension of course <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think yes. I think Xhaka has his has his qualities both both on the pitch and off the pitch he's a much much maligned player but I think he's he's very I think football wise I think he's very good he's a very good passer and I think someone who looked who looked better kind of alongside Torreira sort of having a, a you know a genuine sort of defensive midfielder alongside him and speaking as sort of having 
followed Arsenal a little bit, sort of on their kind of, you know, and sort of done mix zones and stuff. Shaq is a player who always kind of, who always fronts up whatever his other kind of faults may be. He's yeah. someone who's very kind of, he's very good at taking responsibility and, you know, he will always kind of, uh, he'll always speak and, and, and front up. I know, Bill, you mentioned how good their defence is, but they've changed the way they sort of are playing. They're playing a higher line uh, at the moment and it means they mm. actually haven't kept a clean sheet at all this season. Why do you think Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp have done that? Yeah, um, you know, it was it worked. The system worked perfectly last season. Uh, no particular reason to to change anything. Um, but yeah, it they've definitely not been quite as impressive this uh, season so far. I mean, Chelsea created loads in the Super Cup against them, and uh, and Norwich. Uh, at Anfield were opened them up time and again and I know Liverpool deserved to win overall because they had loads of chances themselves but I mean uh, and then in the first half uh, last season last uh, Saturday I thought Southampton again were creating a lot against Liverpool um, maybe the Liverpool just taking a bit of time to get into their stride I don't I wouldn't uh, say it's a long-term problem yet it's a bit too you know early in the season it is odd though I mean given it's the same personnel yeah. um, which and, as Bill said done, has done so well why would you change it And well the thing is when he's been asked Klopp's been asked or when the players have been asked they say they've not changed anything but it's their it's really our lies aren't de- our eyes aren't deceiving <laughs> us it's kind of the only thing some people have tried to suggest is that VAR is, he's sort of looked over the summer that maybe marginal calls are going to be like the offsides is what he's trying to. They're going to be decided. Yes, yeah, you know it's going to be definitive. Oh, that's something else we've spoken about too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the only you know that's the only thing you can think of. But it it does it does seem strange, and they don't look happy. They don't. They, you can tell that the players are sort of Van Dyke seems to be shouting and bawling at people all the time, and there's much bigger holes appearing in in their defence than they than we've been used to seeing. So. Um, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how long that continues. Okay, there's been plenty of EFL action this week with Leeds and Fulham, the big winners, and Nathan Jones's Stoke, the losers. Leeds have gone top after their victory over Brentford in midweek, but perhaps the standout result, not by the scoreline necessarily, even though it was a, hef- a big scoreline with Fulham beating Millwall four nil. Gregor is the actual possession that Fulham had in that game. Yeah, almost eighty-five percent wow. possession. I think I read somewhere that that was the most since of, since since Opta have been sort of registered in the, the championship. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, incredible, really. I think there's quite a bit of excitement building about Fulham. I know it's early, but um, I'd say they have the best squad in the championship. In fact, uh, so it's made, signed really well, uh, Cavaliero from Wolves, Knockart. Uh, keeping Mitrovic was big. Bobby Reed is also waiting in the wings there. Uh, Harry Arters, you know these people who've played in the Premier League. T- Tom Kearney keeping him as well. So certainly going forward, there there's some proposition. Uh, so I think they've got the best squad in the Championship. At Leeds have the best coach in the Championship, uh, and Fulham have Scott Parker, who we. We know very little about you know we we know all, we know of him but yeah. he's, this is his first full season management so I think Fulham's sort of season could hinge upon how he deals with the sort of rigors of a a championship ca- campaign and and uh, 
it's going to be fascinating to watch. They're they're definitely the two teams, the two teams that are uh, everyone's tipping for to battling out for the title. Really, um, Swansea have made a really, really surprising start for for many people after losing Ollie McBurney in the in the summer for twenty million to Sheffield United. He was really their only striker. Uh, they beat QPR at Loftus Road during the week and obviously appointed uh, Steve Cooper who was former England under 17's coach uh, replaced Graham Potter in the summer that was a really interesting appointment and his start has been really encouraging um, so yeah they're the, they're the sort of front runners and then down at the bottom we have Stoke City uh, and Nathan Jones and it seemed like it seemed like the summer was going to be the time that the rot had kind of might have stopped because it's been pretty deep set rot. It's kind of right since their final season in the Premier League under Mark Hughes and Paul Lambert, uh, and then Gary Rowett coming in last year and spending millions of pounds and really, really struggling. I think Nathan, Nathan Jones, since he left Luton for the Potteries in January, has won three games, uh, and they were comp- they were convincingly beaten uh, by Preston. Jack Butland is having an absolute shocker at the moment, throwing in goals, and this is a guy. Two goals yeah, last night. This is a guy who is, was expecting to be in England squad still very recently, and I think Nathan Jones has said he's maybe going to have to take him out the firing line until sort of until I don't know until they can find a win. So yeah, I think and they face Leeds on Saturday. That's where I'm going. In fact, so I'm looking forward to that game, um, and. It's not going to be an easy one for them to to get some much need, needed points on the board. Yeah. Going going back to Fulham, I think I think it's really interesting how, as if you, if you remember Fulham's promotion campaign two seasons ago, was very much built on that you know extremely high possession passing style of football under Slavisa Kanovic, and obviously since then there's been kind of you know enormous amount of upheaval with Kanovic being sacked and obviously replaced by Ranieri, who in turn was being replaced by Scott Parker incredible kind of upheaval in the playing staff and huge number of signings in in the uh, ultimately failed Premier League campaign last season I think I think it's really interesting how the squad has been able to sort of slip back into into that style that they they were so successful with in the championship two seasons ago and I can't I can't believe that they were able to keep Mitrovic in the summer transfer window that re- really surprised me given the the dearth of Good young centre for like out and out young centre forwards in the top five leagues around Europe. You know they were keep able to keep hold of a guy who you know I think he's twenty three, a guy who scored ten goals in the Premier League last year at the age of age of twenty three. I thought was re- was really surprising, but obviously huge. Twenty four. Twenty five next month. Nonetheless, I thought I thought it was really surprising. Is prime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Twenty twenty-nine. <laughs> Still, my point stands. <laughs> no, I was surprised they were able to hold on to him, but fantastic, fantastic for them. And, and as Gregor says, I do think yeah, I, I agree with Gregor. The the squad looks strong for this for this level. But I just wanted to get your take on on Jack Butland in the sense that there has been suggestions that he could have been called up to the England squad. But obviously, mm. his form of, of late is questionable, so perhaps wouldn't even be considered right now. But should Gareth Southgate be dipping into the championship for players? Um, yeah, certainly. Um, if it doesn't matter where they're playing, you know, you, you look anywhere. But um, usually, with, particularly with goalkeepers, you 
you, you think, well, you can look in the championship because you're you're kind of linking with the rest of the team a bit less. I mean, you, if you're a brilliant player, but who who need, who's got great vision, but all your teammates are, uh, don't share your vision. You know, you, your your game can really uh, suffer if you're at a much lower level, for example. But um, as a as a goalkeeper. It, it's, I know there is a bit of teamwork, but it's much more an individual level. So, um, you know, you should be able to just be if you're a good shot stopper, you're a good shot stopper wherever. You know, um, so it, it's surprising that he's uh, fallen away like that. Um, but yeah, if he was playing well, then then certainly Southgate should look at him. But as, as we see, I mean, he's, he's heading for <laughs> league, heading for he's going to be heading for the bench in a team that's heading for League One. But with I mean, Stoke, it's, it's interesting to see. It's worth uh, fans of teams like Bournemouth and Watford who have been quite comfortable in the Premier League over quite a few years. You know, it's worth bearing in mind, you know, um, appreciate what you've got while you're there, you know, because mm-hmm. Stoke were year after year after year, you know, Poulos and Hughes, they kept them up comfortably mid-table. Mid-table. Then they suddenly dropped, kind of one half season under Hughes and they dropped again and then they got rid of him now. It's all collapsed. But, you know, um, it's worth, uh, you know, making the most of it, you know, appreciating what you've got while you're yeah. there. You know. Uh, well, talking of uh, appreciating, appreciating what you've got, there are some clubs who are in financial difficulty. As at the time of this recording, we still don't know what's going to happen with Berry. Uh, as for Bolton, it, things also seem to go from bad to, to worse for them. They've had games postponed. They have no players, no money, and now no manager after Phil Parkinson resigned, along with his assistant Steve Parkin. So, Gregor. What on earth is going to happen with Bolton? And in in terms of a new boss, how can they go on? Uh, how can they recruit a new a new boss in this situation that they're in? I can't see how they can until until the the purchase of the club is is sorted. Really, uh, how how can how can they appoint a new manager? Who's going to really? I saw someone saying saying on Twitter that works works on that that sort of northwest beat that. Rochdale, the former Rochdale manager Keith Hill was interested, but I mean, you know, uh, he's a good manager, but uh, that's not really probably the 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 guy, the sort of level of manager that Bolton would be expecting to go for if they're in a better a better state of health. Um, so I don't think they'll do anything. I think that they'll the youth team coach is going to take charge. Jimmy Phillips. He's going to take charge at the weekend, and then. Um, they they need they just need the sale to go through so that they can buy players and not rely on seventeen year olds in their first team uh, and you know sign some players to to help them at least make a fist of this season but it's gonna it looks increasingly like they're gonna be in League Two next year and it's making a mockery of of League One because you know they 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 refused to play against Doncaster during the week Doncaster got a had a free a free week and when everyone else was playing they're rested up well, how different are are Bolton going to look in in six months' time when another team when other teams are playing them? It's just really the, the League One is is a, is an absolute mess this this year, and obviously that's before we even speak about Buddy, who come tomorrow may may not no longer be a member of it. Yeah, you're, you're right, and also it's almost almost going to be effectively two teams relegated from. Uh... You know, if Barry and Bolton are obviously going down, even if Barry survived, well, well, either way, you know, and so it's just it's just two out of yeah. twenty-two now, so it's changing. But as you, as Gregor says, I mean, yeah, if Bolton's youth 
team or you know barely their youth team is playing against uh, one uh, team going for promotion then by April there's Bolton have had a takeover and they're quite strong again and now they're playing another team going for promotion. I mean, it's, it's yeah. horribly lopsided mm. and unfair, isn't it? Yeah, that level playing field will be certainly questioned, won't it? Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Bill Edgar and James Gearbrand. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. Yeah, it's just a, a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. Now, we'll be back on Monday looking back on all of the weekend's action, which includes that mouth-watering clash between Liverpool and Arsenal at Anfield. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times... Head to thetimes.co.uk.